title of my message this morning is Which Tree Do You Eat From? Which tree do you eat from? In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, we read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. In other words, God is the author of love. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. We talked about that around communion. Without him, we, we are lost. Without him, we can bear no fruit. Without him, we do not have life that will be everlasting. So we are to live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. That's an interesting statement. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Regardless of what you feel, regardless of what your experience has been, God loves you, absolutely, totally besotted with you. You might not feel that, you might not believe that, you might not think that, but that doesn't change that. He is head over heels in love with you. Beloved, if God so loved us, verse 11, we also ought to love one another. Verse 8 in this passage doesn't, tells us that God doesn't just carry love. God, God doesn't just feel love and neither does he simply manifest love. You see, if that was the case, that, that would mean that there is the possibility of him ceasing to love. It would mean there's the possibility of him ceasing to feel love, ceasing to manifest love if God just simply carried love or simply had love in his heart. No, you see, verse 8 tells us that God is love. He doesn't just carry it. He doesn't just feel it. He doesn't just manifest it. He is love. And it's a very, very strong statement that love is, in fact, really what it's saying is love is the very fabric of his nature. It's the, it's the essence, intrinsic essence of his being. Love is it's fundamentally who he is. That's why the Bible chooses its words very carefully. It doesn't say God just loves us. It says God is love. The author goes out of his way to describe the fact God is the very essence of love. You know, many of us have read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's the passage in the Bible that very clearly defines what love is. And it provides us with a very clear guide and a very clear measuring standard when it comes to how God expects us to love each other. If I love you according to the standard of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, then I will be patient with you because love is patient. If I love you according to the standard of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, then I will be kind to you because love is kind. If I love you according to the standard of 1 Corinthians 13, then I won't get grumpy or abrupt with you. I've failed already today. Oh, I haven't got grumpy with you today. <laughs> But if I love you according to this standard, I, I will seek to bless you, not use you. 
Because you see, that's what love is. But it's very enlightening when we read 1 Corinthians 13 and you, you read the passage substituting the name God for the word love. When I understand that God is love, then I realize that God is patient. God is kind. God is, is never going to act unbecomingly towards me. God will never abuse me. God will never use me. God will never provoke me or be provoked by me. No matter what I do, he will not be so provoked that he will stand on me. Because this is the definition of love and the Bible tells us that God is in fact love. He will always bear with me, even though my wife often doesn't. I can be frustrating to live with at times. I am OCD at times. And that can be frustrating to live with. But God will always bear with me. He will never get so frustrated with me that he will flick me. How do I know that? Because this is what love is. And the Bible tells us in the passage we just read, God is love. So therefore God will bear with me. God will endure with me. God will not give up on me. God will always seek what is best for me. He loves me. And because God is love, God created us so that he would have something upon which he could express that love. So that it didn't just stay inside of his heart. He looked for somewhere to bestow it. He looked for somewhere to express it. So he created Adam and Eve. He created the mother and father of the human race. He created us through Adam and Eve so that he would have somewhere to express that love. But interestingly, he also put within us, within our, our heart, within our, our soul, within every fibre of our being, the inbuilt need, not desire, not want, but the inbuilt need to be loved and accepted by God. And so we've got God who is love, who is patient, who is kind, who is not easily irritated, who is not easily provoked, who endures with us and bears with us and suffers alongside of us and continues to work. He never gives up on us because that is what love is and God is love. So he creates us to bestow his love on us. His extravagant love, his reckless love, as we've been singing about today. And then he puts within us, when he creates us, this inbuilt need that we would respond to that because we need his love and we need his acceptance. And in the Garden of Eden, an incredibly safe and an incredibly secure romance was birthed between God and humanity, between God and, and us. It was paradise. It was absolute bliss. It was, it was paradise beyond anything you could imagine. Some of the most tropical places on the planet. It, was, it far exceeded anything that you could ever visit on this current planet. It was characterised by everything that we ever needed or could ever hope for. The garden with the romance between God and us was absolute paradise. The atmosphere was filled and energised by love was filled and it was energised by acceptance, by appreciation, by understanding, by security, by provision in, in absolute abundance. There was no stress, there was no burdens, there was no fear, there was no anxiety, there was no depression, there was no disappointments, there was no pressure to perform or measure up. It was paradise. Absolute paradise 
It was pure perfection. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8 through 9, we read the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree, you need to take note of that, of every tree, of every single tree in this garden, on this planet, in this place that I've called paradise, of every single tree you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely Die. Of every tree in the garden, you may freely eat. In, in, in such an atmosphere of love and acceptance and perfection, there was also an abundance of mangoes. There was an abundance of peaches. There was an abundance of figs. There was an abundance of pomegranates, of plums, of, of apricots, of pears, of apples, of macadamia nuts, of walnuts, of all kinds of nuts except the nuts we find when we walk down the street every day. They didn't exist at that point in time because we didn't exist at that point in time. But there was everything, you, you name it, the garden had it. It was absolute paradise. And if that wasn't enough, if all of that wasn't enough, every single tree was pleasing to the eye. It, it, it was just such a, a paradisical, is that a word? Any English teachers? It sounded all right though, didn't it? It was absolute paradise. But if that wasn't enough, smack there in the middle of the garden, there was this other tree, the tree of life. It was a special tree. Accessible, visible, affable, desirable, delectable, and very edible. Of every tree they could eat, including the tree of life. The tree of life. You know, it's an interesting name, the tree of life. Well, what does it actually mean? I wonder, was it, was it Jesus before his time? Was the tree of life in the, the Garden of Eden, was it Jesus pre-incarnate? Was it Jesus the source of all life? Was it in fact the one who according to Hebrews chapter 1 upholds all things according to the word of his power? Was it Jesus before his time? Was it this tree of life, the searching shepherd who came looking for those or who would come looking for those who ultimately got lost? Was it the great physician who came with healing in his wings? Was the, was the tree of life, in fact, Jesus pre-incarnate? I, I don't really know. It sounds good. Some theologians believe it was. Some don't believe it was. Regardless of what it was, Jesus is a tree of life. And, and, and you know, it's interesting that in the process of this, in the closing chapter of the book of Revelation, the final words of the Bible, John says in 22 verse 1 to 2, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life 
which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It may very well have been Jesus before his time. The one they were feeding on, the tree of life that sustained them, that nourished them, that gave them everything they needed, where they would never lack anything emotionally, spiritually, physically. They would never, never be in want. And our shepherd, he leads us and we shall not want. I wonder if he was the tree of life. Was it Jesus from which they could freely eat in paradise? The tree that gave more sustenance and more life than any of the other trees in the garden and far more life than I think they ever appreciated. What I do know is this. When man chose that other tree against the express directive of God, the tree of life was the only tree they lost access to. I find that very, very interesting. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now now that he's eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And here's what's been happening ever since. Chapter 2, verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. You will lose access to the life source. Was it something in the fruit that enlightened their minds? Was it something in the tree trunk that fed the fruit? That Was it a chemical? Was it a substance? Was it something that, that just triggered this enlightenment where, where they understood evil and they understood good and they, they re- you, you see, up until that point, they were innocent. They didn't know good or evil. They just knew love and acceptance and they knew ultimate good because God is good and only ever does good. And, and there's no one good but God, Jesus said. And so they only experienced good. They only had good. They never understood. We better not do that. We better not go there. We'll just do that. God, you know, we just, there was just this one thing. Just don't touch that tree. That's all they had. Don't touch the tree. Leave the tree alone. Just, just follow my directive. But of course, we, we made the choice and we ate of the tree we were told not to. And at that moment, we became the living dead. We became the, the walking dead, our souls still active, our, our thinking, our feeling, our choosing, but now malfunctioning on whole different levels. And that's a whole different message on the mental illness today. And I mentioned earlier the depression, the anxiety, the fear, the phobias, the violence, the hatred, the jealousy, the anger. It all happens in the the mind. It wasn't there before they ate the tree of the tree that they were told not to eat. But as a result of that, you know, God said they die. But I, I wonder if in the Garden of Eden when they bit it, they thought, still here. What they didn't understand was they'd become the living dead, walking zombies. 
separated from the source of all life. And at that point, they began to die. They began to deteriorate in their soul, in their mind, in their emotions, in their thinking. They began to deteriorate in their body. And every single one of us here who are over the age of 21 can begin to testify of the deterioration of the the body that gets to us as we get older and we don't look after it you know they began to deteriorate but I think they I think they might have thought within themselves no this is not as bad as we thought it was going to be but something happened inside their spirit they became dead to God they cut off from the the life source and you know cut off from the, the only one who could who, who could meet that inbuilt need for love and acceptance because you see God is love and God created them to express his love but he put within them this inbuilt need for God to love and accept them so that they would have that and, and they couldn't get it anywhere else but God and now they're separated from God, they're dead to God but now they're stuck over here with this inbuilt need. And such was the brokenness and the death that came. Man, ever since, has been searching in some of the most soul-destroying places to have that need for love and acceptance fulfilled. When we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we were cut off from God. The dilemma, we're still left with the inbuilt need. Faced with such an inner driving and such an insatiable need, we find ourselves driven to make up for the deficiency. The world looks for love and acceptance. Some of the most soul-destroying of places. We sell ourselves to just have that need met, often at a much higher price. And that's a message all on its own. But the sad thing is to acknowledge so many of us professing to be followers of Jesus do the same thing. Because we have this head head understanding that, that Jesus died for me. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. My head knows it, but yet my heart will go looking for something else other than God to meet the need. My heart will go looking in a relationship. That one doesn't work, so I'll move to another one. That one doesn't work. I'll move to another one like the woman at the well when Jesus came and said, go get your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He looked right into the need, that inbuilt need that God God put there way back in the beginning and said, no, you've had five husbands and the one you've now got is not your husband. You've shacked up with him because you don't want to get burnt a sixth time. You've gone from one relationship to another. He didn't condemn that woman. He just said, listen to me, come to me, the tree of life, and I will bring to you water that you will never thirst again. You will never look in the wrong place again. You will never chase the wrong channel again to try and have that need satisfied. You'll find it in me. We've looked in all the wrong places, but the scary thing is we've got churches filled with people still looking in the wrong places for their needs to be met. When we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was it in the fruit? It was in what God said. A spiritual dynamic took place in the heavenly realm. Nothing to do with the fruit. We say it was an apple. I don't think it was an apple. We don't know what it was. But it was the fact God said, don't touch it. 
And when they took it and they ate of it, something spiritual took place in the heavenly realm. Something died, something shifted, something went out of alignment, something broke, something snapped that sent us on a tailspin of going places that that we're just looking in all these places to just have that inbuilt need met because the the one who could satisfy it we're now separated from, we're now distant from. And what has happened is we've, we've imbibed this insidious, underlying belief that because God is good, then we must do good in order to improve our condition. It's rife in the house of God. It's rife amongst Christians. We talk the talk. We know that Jesus is the only way. We know that I can do nothing. We know we had a debt we couldn't pay. But we, 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 we know that Jesus paid the debt that I couldn't pay. But yet we still go out thinking I've still got to do good to please God. And that's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil did to humanity. It put within us this understanding that evil is bad. God doesn't like it. Good is good and God is good and there's none like God. So the more good I do, the more I'll be pleased by God. And the more evil I do, the more he'll reject me. And it's this this merry-go-round that just sends us in a spin. And so we get saved or we kind of think we're saved. But then we we, we do what, what Paul said to Galatians, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? What you started in the spirit, do you think you can finish in the flesh? And so we've got to do all this good and then we get guilty because we mess up. But what, what happens is we can't do enough good to be pleasing to God. That's the dilemma that we face. And so we now, we eat this fruit and this, we've imbibed this mindset that, that says, okay, I've got to walk a very fine line or oh, I'm being tempted and I just, I start to go off and I, I engage in things that are not pleasing to God. And then I go and I think, oh, I've got to come back. I better come, I'm back to here. But then, oh, I feel really bad because I went there. I've got to come a bit this way just to, just to balance that. So God, see, I'm doing, I'm trying, I'm really doing okay. I'm trying hard. And, and then we, we, we come back to the even again and then we get tempted again. And what often happens in the course of life, and I've found this with people that I've worked with in ministry and their journey of pain is that the further in evil we go, the further in good we have to go. And then the higher in good we go is the depth to which we fall back into evil. And it's a merry-go-round ride that doesn't change. We think, I'm finally over here. I've been over here for six months. I'm doing really good. God's going to be happy with me. God's going to be pleased with me. But something happens. The devil, he's just a snake. And he just, you know, I was on a motorbike ride last week. I was on the Oxley Highway with Peter Padmos, Jim Morris and John Cook. And talk about the snake of the devil. Peter Padmos is leading the pack. Then there's Jim Morris. Then there's me. Then there's John Cook behind. And all of a sudden, I saw Jim Morris just swerve really quick. I thought, what's going on? And by the time I had the words in my mind, what's going on? There it was. A four foot long King Brown crossing the road. So it's coming like this and I'm going like this. And I thought, if that hooks up in my wheel, it's going to end up in my lap. And I thought, I'm going to run over its head. And I, I, you know, I can't get my leg much higher than that, but I reckon my foot was at the back of my helmet. <laughs> I lifted this thing. Anyway, we pulled up down the road and John Cook, he's coming behind. He said, that thing lunged at you. I thought, I'm glad I lifted my leg. I'm probably only about that high. But he said, that thing lunged at you. And I thought, it's just like the devil. He just, just in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when you least expect it, I didn't even have time to swerve. I just, I thought, I'm done. I'm going to run over this thing. It's going to end up in my lap. I'll grab it by the head. I'll bite its head off and throw it over my shoulder. 
crocodile Dundee, but it's just like the devil to do that. He just he comes out of nowhere when you least expect it. And you think, oh, I'm doing so good. I'm over here. God will be really happy. Listen, folks, you might don't sit there and think, no, but this is not what the Bible teaches. No, I know it's not what the Bible teaches, but it's how we often behave. And we've got to shake it off. We've got to break it. And over here, and all of a sudden, you think you're doing well. You're cruising, and in comes that four-foot-long brown snake. And you think, whoa, and you, you lunged, you're gone, you missed, you, you crash, you burn. But we have this thing that, that I've got to counter my evil with a substantial amount of good. We know with our mind that when we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Yet something inside of us can't accept that Jesus has fixed it all. And so we continue to try and gain love and acceptance. Something inside of us can't just rest. I couldn't do it. You've done it. You've saved me. Now empower me. Now strengthen me. Help me to get up each day and live in that love and that acceptance. Help me to accept the fact that I've done all this wrong and I can't do anything to fix it, but you've fixed it and you've pardoned me. I'm not on parole. I'm not now having to prove myself to be a worthy citizen of heaven once again so I can be reintegrated into society without supervision. I'm not on parole. I'm pardoned. I'm completely cleared of every single charge. You know, I need to stop eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and embrace the mercy of God. And once again, eat afresh from the tree of life by living in him, the life-giving vine. Can you get that? You know, some people don't like flowers. Some people love flowers. Some people don't like flowers. And I found one of the common reasons people don't like flowers, who, the ones who don't like them, is because they just watch them die. They're nice when they first arrive, but then over a period of days, maybe a week, they eventually die and the leaves fall off and they look gross and then you don't get time to fix it and then after a while they're just all brown and dead and dropping all over your dining room table. And whatever. So a lot of people say, no, I don't want flowers, they just die. And there's a reason why they die is because they've been cut off from the life source. But you see, what we've done, if you cut flowers out of your garden in the middle of the day and you throw them on the lawn, it's not very long before they're pretty off. Give it half an hour to an hour, you wouldn't give them to somebody. But we can prolong their life by putting them in water. And if you go to a florist, they've got these little packets that are nutrients in the water. And we put the nutrients in the water and that actually makes them last even a little bit longer. And so we've got these strategies of getting the the most distance out of these flowers, but at the end of the day, they're still going to die, aren't they? It's the same with the the good and the evil. We've got to stop eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not about, I've got to do more good to please God, less evil to not please God. And and, and, and just, you know, we've got to to just go back to the vine because we're like the branch separated from the vine. We're like the flower. We're we're, we're just eventually going to die, even though we might last a bit longer because we're living a lifestyle perhaps that has just sustained us for a little bit longer, but we're no more pleasing to God. I hope this is, this is making sense. I, I'm going to close with this. This is a Waylon Jennings song. And I think it, it says so much about... I'm not going to sing it. 
I can have a good go. It says so much about the futility of us eating from the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where we, where, you know, I do all this good, I do all this good, I do all this good, and eventually God will be so happy. God will not be happy because our righteousness is as filthy rags. We're still going to die unless we eat from the tree of life. Unless we're living from the tree of life, unless we're being sustained by the tree of life, you can't be cut off and put in a vase. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is like being in a vase where we're just, we're just trying and trying, but eventually it's going to come to the point where you're going to die. Because without Him, we're going to die. Here's the song. It starts off talking and then it goes into singing. So you're taking better care of your body. I can't, I can't not do it without Waylon Jennings' accent. Becoming more aware of your body, responding to your body's needs. Everything you hear and read about diets, nutrition and sleeping position and detoxifying your system and buying machines that they advertise to help you exercise. Herbs to revitalise, soaps that will sanitise, sprays to deodorise, liquid to neutralise acids and pesticides. Free weights to maximise your strength and your muscle size. Shots that will immunise. Pills to re-energise. But remember that for all your pain and your gain, eventually the story ends the same. You can quit smoking, but you're still going to die. Cut out coking, but you're still going to die. I don't think that's Coca-Cola that's talking about. <laughs> you can eliminate everything fatty or fried, and you can get real healthy but you're still going to die. Stop drinking booze, you're still going to die. Stay away from dark places, you're still going to die. You can cut out coffee and you can never get high, but you're still going to, still going to, still going to die. You're still going to die, you're still going to die. You can even give aerobics one more try. But when the music stops playing, you're still going to die. You can put seatbelts in your car, you're still going to die. Cut nicotine tar, you're still going to die. You can even exercise that cellulite right off of your thigh. Get slimmer and trimmer, but you're still going to die. Stop getting a tan, you're still going to die. Eat a, lo eat a lot of oat bran, you're still going to die. You can search for UFOs up in the sky. They might even fly you all the way to Mars, but you're still going to die. You're still going to die, you're still going to die. And all the Reeboks and Nikes and Adidas you buy, you can jog right up to heaven, but you're still going to die. Drink ginseng tonics, you're still going to die. Get regular colonics, you're still going to die. You can have yourself frozen and even suspended in time, but when they thaw you out, you're still going to die. I won't read that line. <laughs> you can switch to crest, you're still going to die. You can... Get rid of stress, get a lot of rest, get an AIDS test, enrolled in EST, move out west where it's sunny and dry, and you'll live to be a hundred. But you're still going to die. You're still going to die. You're still going to die. So you'd better have some fun before you say bye-bye because you're still going to die. You're still going to die. That's the futility of living our Christian life from the wrong tree. 
Stop eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which only fuels that mindset that says the more good I do, the more God will love me, the more God will accept me, the more God will bless me. But the more evil I do, then the more God will reject me, the more God will not bless me, the more God will be angry with me. And I've just got to keep doing more good. Than, you know, we just got to stop eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is what messed up this whole place in the first time. We've got to get back to the tree of life. See, all they knew was don't touch that tree. But anything else, there was no boundaries. There was no, can't do this, can't do that. Will God be happy today? I, I had some bad thoughts today. No, they just lived in innocence because they were eating from the tree of life. But the moment they ate from the other tree, which tree are you eating from? Which tree are you eating from? Father, I pray today that your Holy Spirit would, would bring a revelation to our heart that we are branches and without being vitally, permanently, 24-7, 365 days a year, connected to the vine, we're still going to die. We need you, Jesus. We need you so badly. And I pray, Lord, that we would be people that would get up every morning and say, thank you, Jesus, that I'm washed in the blood. Thank you, Jesus, that I'm acceptable to you. Thank you, Jesus, that you've, you've set me apart and you've sanctified me and you've made me holy, even though I don't feel holy and I don't feel set apart and I don't feel sanctified. I am because I believe what your word says. And I, I, I will do good simply because I love you. I'm not going to do good to get acceptance from you because I am accepted by you. All I have to do is surrender to you. All I have to do is receive you. You know, folks, while your eyes are closed, your heads are bowed this morning. Maybe you've come into the meeting today and you've never received Jesus, the tree of life, if you like. You are currently eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, hoping that if there's a heaven, that you'll make it there. Hoping that if there's a God that he will see that you've done more good than bad and He will accept you. Well, I hope if you've been listening, you'll know that's not the case because our good deeds are filthy in His sight. That's why He sent Jesus to die for us, that He might wash us, cleanse us, put us back on our feet. I cried out to the Lord and He heard me. And he lifted me out of the miry clay and out of the mud and out of the mire. And he put my feet on a rock and he established my going. You know, the key word in that Psalm 40, 42, I think it is, or 43, the key word is he. He brought me out of the miry pit. He brought me out of the mud and the mire. He brought me out of the mess that I'm in. He brought me out of the pain and the suffering. He brought me out. We can't bring ourselves out. No matter what we do, we're lost without Him. He brings us out and He brings us out. He puts my feet on a rock. He establishes my going. He directs and orders my steps. We've got to stop taking over and trying to do more good than evil and just abide, just live, just receive, just enjoy. And then when we do mess up, we just stop and say, well, still got a bit of that old stuff on me, Lord. Just help me, help me not to do that again. He'd go, yeah, come on, we're working together on this because that's the grace of God. That's the goodness of God. If you're in the meeting today and you've never experienced His love and His acceptance and His absolute forgiveness, right now with eyes closed, heads about, I want you to raise your hand right where you're sitting. 
I'll see it. I'll acknowledge it. You'll be able to put it down again. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm just going to know I'm going to pray for you this morning. If that's you, you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. You want to experience that, that love, that acceptance, that forgiveness, that washing. I'm not asking you to become religious. That's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is about. It's about religion. The more good we do, it's religion. This is about relationship with the vine, the life-giving vine. If that's you right now, as we close, raise your hand. I'll see it and I'll know to pray for you today. Father, I thank you for every person in this place. I thank you. Lord, for the anointing that breaks the yoke. I thank you, Lord, for your your forgiveness, your goodness, your grace, your kindness. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help each and every one of us to go home today and just receive. Just receive. Stop trying and start living in Him and with Him and through Him. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.